0: Okay. the s the six stops. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that realises bankruptcy hurts so good. I'm Scott Phillips and with me, as always, Dr. Anirban Mahanti. G'day, Doc. How are you? I'm great. Fantastic. Wonderful. You're, you're, you've been very upbeat the last couple of weeks, mate. The things things are looking up in the economy. Is it the stock market? Are you just feeling better about stuff? What's, what's going on? It's just bad and sunny. <laughs> there we go. All right. Mate, we've got a big <laughs> podcast to get through today as we always do, and it's going to be dominated by surprise coronavirus, uh, big swings on the stock market, potential new outbreaks, uh, power balance shifting in some categories. We've got a lot to get on with, mate. So rather than going to, through it bit by bit, how about we just dive straight in? Let's dive. All right. Motley fool money. For more, go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Alright buddy, look, I I was asked this morning, I did a media appearance this morning on Sky News, actually, funnily enough, first time for me. Um, and Peter Stefanovic was asking me about kind of how the market would take the unemployment numbers. Now, we're doing this on Thursday, so by the time this is published, we will know the numbers and we will know what the market's done. Um, so we're recording this in advance of that. We did have a couple of listeners say to me last week, guys, every time you guys record on a Thursday, the Friday market goes bananas. Maybe you should record on a Friday. So we might, we might have to take that under advisement. <laughs> there was there was some suggestion I think we were causing it, so I don't know if that's true. But, mate, we have, we've had... Uh, I mean, look, sentiments always drive market, right? On a normal week, you might get three up days, two down days, or two up days, three, you know, three down days, four and one, one and four. It's it's pretty kind of, not like, I mean, it's pretty random generally, but it's, it's kind of just, it oscillates a lot. Over the last couple of weeks, we had seven straight days of gains. Then we had three terrible days of losses. One day in the US, they lost 6%. Then we had four straight days of gains again. And as we record this, the US market closed down for the first time in, in almost a, a calendar week. Um, it, it just strikes me that while sentiment is always always dominates short-term movements, in this case, the market kind of doesn't know what it wants to do. It, it, it's taken off in one direction in a hurry. And then all of a sudden, it kind of reverses calls and takes off in the other direction in a hurry for kind of days at a time. We're trying to work out what the mood should actually be. Your, your reflections on that? Oh, well, yeah. So I think you've captured
1: everything that's happening. Uh, well, here's my view. I think a lot of this. Uh, I'm going to blame it on, I'm going to typecast and, and and blame people now. So this is going to be interesting. No, I'm going go 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 to blame all the value folks out there, the, the people, the value hunters out there. Oh, They're the ones go. who are actually causing bloody So bloody it's not
0: the, Just trying to blame other people. It's
1: it's not the, uh, it's not the Robin Hood type. So it's not the, I mean, I mean, the retail people (laughs) and the Robin Hood types, they like contribute Uh to 1%. Uh It's all these people who are buying uh, quote-unquote rubbish. Um, (laughs) And they're they're just buying rubbish at low prices, hoping that they're going to get a higher price. Uh, So like example, I'll tell you, what's causing the fluctuation? So in the US markets, you'll see what's up 5%, 6% is the airlines. Well, okay. And the cruise lines too, right? And and the cruise lines. And then the (laughs) cruise liner comes and says, well, you know what? We're not going to be floating any boats until maybe October And the has gone. So it's, it's that sort of, you know, it's the, it's these, mm. it's the, uh, these are the stocks and companies that have been completely destroyed. Um, <laughs> you know, their business has been destroyed, utterly destroyed. Like, you know, they've gone through restructuring in some cases. These are the ones that are going up, um, you know, and yeah. So I mean, I do, at, at sometimes I look at this rally and say, oh boy, this rally is not a good rally because when the, you know, earnings numbers start pouring in and when the real numbers hit, it's, it's a lot of people doing a short term. Um, gig, you know that all this has been sold off, and this probably is undervalued, and I'm going to get out at when it's fairly value So that's. That's my interpretation. So I'm going to blame the value gang um, uh, in its entirety for buying uh, quote unquote uh, stocks that are completely dead, in my almost dead, nearly dead, in my view. And uh, yeah, that's causing the value. Only, well. only a
0: growth investor could, with, with the hot money that chases stocks like Tesla up and down 300% in a year, could blame the value guys for pushing up the Carnival Cruise Lines up 5%. I, I'm going to I'm going to call that the pot calling the kettle blank, mate. I've got to say. <laughs> if, 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 Look at some of these some of these hyper growth stocks that go up and, and up and down and up and down and up and down and up and down and you want to blame the poor value guys who are trying to earn a, earn a buck trying to work out window by the airlines come on
1: yeah be like fair, you know they're, they're trying to buy this thing at like you know 60 cents for a dollar a <laughs> cent at 80 cents for the dollar who knows what that real dollar value actually is um, you know like the, the growth guys they're thinking about the future like the bright shiny future when we're going to be living in Mars <laughs> that's what I'm thinking about <clears throat> and, and these guys are just you know they're nickel and diming and you know stuff so that's what's causing the volume volatility that's it that is the answer for the volatility i'm done
0: i find it i find that very hard to believe it, it is it is fascinating man. you know what what you know it just it strikes me that the market is really really um, agitated right now, doesn't know where it wants to go. It feels like it's too easy to characterize it, but it also seems, seems almost right enough to characterize it this way that, you know, the market's sold off by a lot. We don't want to miss the, we don't miss the rally when it recovers, so everyone piles in. And the stock starts falling because, of, oh, I don't want to be left holding the baby if the rally's not real, and so they will all pile out again. There's kind of this just, you know, the market's always up and down, it always does, right? Day-to-day, month-to-month, week-to-week. We know that's what happens. It just strikes me that in particular this time, the, the long streaks, are unusual, right? The long streaks of recovery and the long streaks of falls, that's the bit that really gets me. There is some sense that, you know, market, the herd running kind of, you know, left and right, left and right, like some bad Warner Brothers cartoon, you know. Everyone on that side of the ship. No, everyone on that side of the ship. Um, It it really strikes me that that's (laughs) – the longer I do this, mate, the more frustrated I get with our industry, quite frankly. The people who are trying to do this stuff and and guess daily moves, hourly moves, minute-by-minute moves – it just drives me nuts.
1: Oh, I'm not frustrated about anything right now. I'm so, go for it, do it. <laughs> <laughs> buy the sixty cents. Buy the eighty cents. Try to sell at seventy-five cents. Whatever. Uh, yeah, that's a lot of volatility. Look, I mean, um, it's it's part of the market. But you know, I just find I I'm just being a little. Cynical and a little sarcastic um, <laughs> about all the rally. I mean, some of this rally is um, unfounded, uncalled for, um, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, some of that is just uh, way Thanks. too much optimism, and and some of it is 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 is, is real and and probably is worthwhile. So, I mean, but that's true. We'll show
0: time. Yeah. But anyways. I and, and would we'll say, I think, just for our listeners, I guess my, my point, being, you, you can disagree. I'm not sure I think you'll agree, but we'll see. Um, my point is just, don't, just as always, please remember not to let the market drive your mood, drive your decisions. If you think the market's somehow smarter than you are, look at the last few weeks and realize that it doesn't know it either. So before you, before you try and say, the market's trying to tell me something, you know what the market's trying to tell you? It has no idea, and you really, really shouldn't be paying attention to it.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, you know, yeah, the mark, market is doing its thing, which it always does. Um, no. If anything, it's become just a little bit more volatile than it t- typically used to be, or, or at least yeah, in, in, the, in the well. recent past. Yeah, yeah for yeah, long periods, yeah, yeah, it was yeah. less volatile, has become a bit volatile now and yeah you know like the uh, like what i like to say is that there are various ways to skin the cat in the market you know Mm. there are people like you know there's what we do there's other people who do different things and and the volatility is like you know is a boon for some people they're you know they're enjoying the volatility doing things for the volatility it's creating probably more volatility um you know it's so again lots of different things yeah I, i i don't really try to it's it's not worthwhile trying to guess and second guess and third guess what the market is actually trying to tell us because it's a bunch of different people doing different things.
0: Now, mate, oh, that's all true. There are some meaningful risks and some meaningful upsides potentially around the market right now. So as much as the daily volatility, the weekly volatility isn't very useful. A couple of things that are on our kind of radar right now. The first thing you mentioned this morning is, you know, you kind of put it in, our, in our agenda, is coronavirus back? question mark? And I said, what do you mean by that? And you said?
1: Well, well, I said that, you know, uh, there's a a cluster found in some market in Beijing. Mm. Um, You know, Beijing basically then curtailed flights coming into Beijing, I believe, by 50%. And, you know, there's some massive effort, you know, trying to sort of understand what's going on there. Is it a new variant and whatnot? Um, So, I mean, there have been some clusters in in various parts of the world, in various, uh, you know, economies in different parts of the world are open to different extents. And there have been some spikes and some new cases and and things like that. There are claims that the virus has become weak over time because of, uh, again, the, you know, the quarantines that have been done. uh, But then there's this fear of the second wave. So, I mean, you know, it's just a question I think like you know is, this is not behind us yet is I guess what I was trying to uh, say at the same time uh, you know maybe the fear and the panic that was out there with, with version one it's not there as much as version two mm, and if there's a version three and so on and then of course other progress so I think it's just to balance the point that you know lots of things happening uh, but the virus could be back which could yeah. you know be, uh, which could have an impact on the recovery that we are starting to see
0: now, mate. I, I, I jump on tr- social media as I listen as well, now. And I saw something this morning about the second wave. And this guy, kind of a little bit, uh, you know, a little bit knuckle. He said, "Hey, you can't call it a second wave if the first wave haven't stopped yet." He said, "In America, we're swimming down a coronavirus river. If you want a nautical, if you want a nautical kind of analogy to go with, you know, we're not. We, you can't have a second wave until the first wave actually stops." They saw record numbers of of new cases, I believe, in three states um, only this week. Uh, you know, to some degree. I think maybe I wonder. So, I guess my broad question is: Is the narrative different? Is the reality different in, say, Australia with with reasonably closed borders and tiny numbers of cases, compared to Beijing with lots and lots and lots of people and an outbreaks, compared to the US? It Really, I think it's. I mean, it was a narky kind of tweet, but you know, everyone's entitled to do that, I suppose, if they want to. But the broad point, I actually, thought was not unreasonable that. You can't have a second wave till the first wave stops, right? And it seems like, at least in the US, the first wave is still kind of going strong.
1: Yeah, I think that, that's that's largely true. As I said, in, you know, one of, in one of the podcasts, right? One of the advantages island nations have is that they could basically shut off and therefore, um, therefore, have the potential to uh, reduce um, virus spread, right? That's really hard, if, a for larger populations, and b if you're not an island nation. Uh, I and mean, that's just the reality of the of both the both the size of population and the. Mm-hmm. Geographic advantages or disadvantages, right? So, I mean, like Europe, for example, I mean, it has no hope of elimination. It can't. Like, I mean, you know, porous borders, different countries, different rules. And the same thing is probably true in the U.S. with different, you know, counties and so on, larger country. Um, so, I think... Uh, uh, so, there's some truth to that, that, you know, the first wave is not... Well, I, I think here's... I, I look at it slightly differently. Uh, yeah. My view is that the first wave was when, when the thing, the virus arrived, um, people did not know... Uh, when something new happens and it causes, um, you know, panic, there, you know, mm-hmm. panic by itself has its side effects, right? So doctors don't know what to do, nurses don't know what to do, you know, um, health authority authorities don't know what to do. There's not enough protective gear. You don't know what protective gear you want. You don't know what you know treatment you can give um, if somebody's in the hospital. You don't know. You don't have enough ventilators. You don't know what you need. Do you need ventilators? Is is CPAP machines, um, you, you know, um, continuous pathway air machines, like the stuff that ResMed makes, are those good enough? You know, none of those questions were answered, which really causes trouble. A lot of those questions are now answered. That's number one. Number two is that, you know, whatever type of um, quarantines have happened in different parts of the world, I think what that does is that um, reduces the immediate jump that a virus has the replication capabilities of the virus. Uh, and then the third thing we right, right now know is how fast this virus is mutating. It's not mutating that quickly, um, which, which is a good thing. So all of those things, I think it makes, so in that sense, the first wave was the imminent attack the second wave is really now that we have dealt with it, we know information, we have more information, we'll be able to manage outbreaks differently. Um, yeah, right. So, okay. so yeah, in, in that sense, it's the second wave. You know, and largely, the, I think the narrative that, I you know, the case count bogey, I call it a bogey because, I mean, the case counts are directly proportional to the number of tests you do. Case counts are not equal to death and, um, uh, you know, we also know that, so for example, there's an interesting statistics out of the UK uh, of what the 50,000 deaths, um, you know, 30,000 or whatever the number is, 30,000 were caused were COVID related, but there were 15,000 that were outside of COVID caused because of quarantine, because people did not go to the hospital because they had a stroke and things like that because they were fear. So there's this, there's the other In the in the states, for example, there was a statistics that said that fifty thousand of the deaths were nursing home related, right? So you now know that a strong concentration of deaths were in a certain type of area for a certain reason, um, and therefore you can deal with the different. So I think that's what I mean. Uh, There's also this factor of immunity uh, that comes into play. So I'm, you know, like this this count thing. Uh, is false economy in my view. I think the real thing to think about is, you know, what have you learned and what can you do about it? So that's why I I count this as anything that's happening now has a different impact than what has happened in the past.
0: Fascinating. Thank you, mate. I'm going to take the other side, not take the other side, but I also want to throw the other option. And again, we think about why the market dives for days and recovers for days. Part of the diving for days thing is, oh my goodness, what if this pandemic isn't over? What if the economy is worse than we think? I'm gonna say this is this is a horrible. This is not scientifically valid at all as a sample. So I'm gonna put that out there. I, I tweeted a couple of times during the last few days, mate. I was out and about on the weekend on, on Sunday and then again on Monday. And I like I don't. Do, I'm not the sort of person who. I mean, scuttlebutt's always good, right? It's always nice to know what's going on on the ground. But I'm I don't. I'm not the sort of nosy person who wants to ask everyone, "Hey, how's your business going? How's your business going?" But I actually did think I, I thought you know, given given our role and given frankly how little we know. I just thought I'd start asking a few small business people around, just as I go about my, my, my day, you know, how, how are things? And I have been, to, to a person, when I've asked, the results have been overwhelmingly positive. And not just overwhelmingly positive as in all positive, overwhelmingly as in like you, you, um, you know, strongly positive by the people I've been talking to. I spoke to a local publican who said, business has been great. Um, it, it, you know, I spoke to the local cafe, Who were, the cafe was chockers the other day at lunch, literally full. Uh, I spoke to, well, we saw a super retail group, one ASX listed stock who had sales down 26% in April, but then up 26% in May. And again, they're not necessarily gonna be like for like, but, but a reasonable sense that there's some bounce back. I'm an optimist by nature, you know that, our listeners certainly know that. I got to say though, mate, I, and look, yeah, of course, travel is still in the toilet. Of course, you know some retailers still tough. I, you know, I get it. There are still areas of, of problem, and we're not. I'm not suggesting there's no recession or that the, the pain's over. But I got to say, and I'm, I'm, I'm pretty optimistic and and, and kind of quietly confident that overall, while we're not going to bounce back to you know back to normal in in weeks, we're a much much better position than even I dared hope only three or four weeks ago. Things seem to be getting back on track pretty quickly.
1: Yeah. So I wouldn't disagree with you. I will. Um add uh, a different counterpoint I'll add a a little bit of a um, a psychology aspect here so you, you know the thing is that April was so bad March was so bad that a little bit good is actually making people feel awesome, right? And, and <laughs> yeah, right. so, so I mean, you know, we all, like, so we know that there are limits, for example, on cafes and there's, you know, the four yep. meter square rule that, you know, um, there's being followed. So therefore the total volume that you can have inside is limited. Mm-hmm. You know, it's actually less than it could have been in the past or was in the past, right? So you might be flat out right now and that therefore makes you feel like, okay, things are good, but it's not back to the same level. Like, and this is what you were saying. So I, I think this recovery is happening. Um, that's, that's definitely happening. Whether, as I've always said, I think the two things to keep in mind is, one, the long-term impact. Um, You know, tourism, for example, is one of them. You know, international students is another. another, uh, Migration is the third one. Those are, I think, those are big factors. Um, And therefore, to get back to where we were, it's going to just take time. And, you know, the other, yeah. yeah. So, So we shouldn't be disappointed if it doesn't seem like we haven't gotten back to where we were last year. Right. I think I think the thing is that if, if we are doing well, then we should be happy about it, but we shouldn't be disappointed at the same time. So I don't want to be too positive and say, oh, it's always great, because then there's a chance of disappointment. I don't want to be disappointed. I <laughs> yeah,
0: get point.
1: Well, well, like, you know, like uh, up over April, of course, I'm happy about that. But, you know, is it really up? Uh, is it, you know, pent up demand and all those things? So, you know, we should be a little bit, you know, I'm just being... Uh, a little bit more cautious, of that um, yeah, as like I mean, the economy, even gyms are now back to being open. So I mean, you know, right, things yeah. are happening. People, yeah, things are happening. It's all all, all good, uh, but there are entire sectors uh, that are still hurting. Uh, there are businesses that are not going to be alive, uh, you know, in a couple of months' time. That's also the reality, and, and that's okay. I mean, you know, we'll, we'll pick up the pieces. It's not okay for those people and, and that company and the owners of the business and the people working there, but. I mean, overall, I think you know people will pick pick up the pieces and move on. Uh, but, if, uh, yeah, let's. I want to be op- cautiously optimistic.
0: I like that. I think that's I think that's my approach too. As I'm not, I, I don't want my message to be everything's okay. More that if you'd asked me four weeks ago how quickly I thought things would get back on track, I wouldn't have been game enough to say this good. Now, and and this good is still not as you say perfect, and, and still plenty of ways to go. But I, if you'd have offered us, if you'd have offered us this recovery path. Two months ago, I reckon you and I would have run and grabbed it with both hands, right? If they said, "Look, this will, yeah. this will happen this quickly. Case counts will stay reasonably low. Touch wood. Fingers crossed. All that stuff. The economy will start getting back to to, to business. We can start opening up. And and frankly, I mean, what's been great? And again, like good management, who cares? At least it's positive. You know, cafes are getting back. Gyms are going back. and We're not seeing spike in cases. Like that's that's the really for me anyway. That's the real positive. Rise. Right? We've been able to handle. Been lucky enough to have whatever you want to whatever you want to say you know, getting back to normal without a spike in cases, which is pretty bloody cool.
1: Yeah, I think that that's that's all, all positive and I think that's all true.
0: Now, mate, for all of that, in the US, Fed Chair Jerome Powell is uh, pretty much <laughs> – I, I, I don't know what's left – I, if they, it, I think they've thrown the kitchen sink three or four times by now I, I literally I, I, there's someone at the Fed who's literally you know, going through cupboards and looking under desks and trying to find something else they can do and yet Powell has again said we will do more and you should do more i.e. the government um, to make sure we kind of get out of this in a, in a reasonable position I, I think I, I might have said last week if I didn't I'm a little bit concerned that the more they throw at this thing, the less literally is left in the cupboard. And I know people said that about the GFC and I wasn't one of those who said at the GFC, oh, there's nothing left. But I did expect we'd get back to normal more quickly and have it be in a better position by the next crisis. In the event we didn't, we haven't. QE was barely over. Interest rates are still super low. GDP growth was reasonably weak. And now we've got this. Um uh, <laughs> Is more stimulus the answer? Is there enough stimulus left? Where, do, where does that leave us?
1: Um, so I'm going to take the other of that. So I think, you know, the US had the best economy uh, until the coronavirus, at least in the developed world, right? I mean, their unemployment rates were unbelievably low. We'd take that any day. Uh, that solid GDP growth, uh, booming companies, um, uh, right? It's not that they didn't have problems. They have problems, uh, you know, rising inequality and things like that. But I think the economy was extremely strong. So I think that the economy and the businesses on the ground and, and the innovation that's happening, I think they were all um, top-notch and had this not, I mean, you know, under 4% unemployment. Uh, phenomenal numbers they had. So uh, I think they had, my view would be that they had recovered from GFC very well. They have, you know, the structural changes in the economy. I think they, uh, their market and their businesses have been able to take a lot of advantage of the structural changes in the market. Uh so the the question right now I guess is is more the answer I don't know actually probably they don't need to do more is would be my thing but I think what Powell was basically saying is, I think Powell's strategy has always, it looks like, is ask for more and then you know you'll get less. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, fair so, so Powell basically is saying, well, you know, they're giving $600 of unemployment benefits uh, mm. per week. Uh, that's supposed to end in July or something like that, end of July. And he's basically just pushing for that to be, you uh, extended. So it's unlike here where the unemployment benefits or job keepers are essentially until September. Their, theirs actually finishes relatively quickly. Um, right. And he's basically if pushing for, like, you know, those jobs that are not going to be back, um, you know, uh, let's support them a little longer. So he's basically I'd be asking. I had to for cut the, that, wouldn't I? Can you imagine that? Yeah. Well, well, that's, that's oh. you know, in, in what they've approved is until July, really, yeah, right? So he's yeah. basically just making a case that, well, you know, yeah. why don't you extend it <laughs> by a few more months? Um, yeah. uh, and, you know, uh, you know, if you, if you ask, you know, why don't you pay a few trillion dollars on uh, infrastructure? Okay, if you can't do that, maybe pay, pay people some money for some time. Um, it looks like that sort of bit. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Like, I mean, uh, I'm not really sure. I mean, their economy, yeah, yeah. yeah the, the job ads uh, mm. has been actually pretty good in May from from the numbers that we have seen. And, you know, it, it blew any expectations out. So yeah. I'm not sure. This infrastructure thing, I've heard, I mean, there are different takes on this, right? I mean, infrastructure spending basically creates jobs. It helps, like, you know, inflates the GDP numbers. But I'm not really okay. sure whether, whether, whether you want that because I mean, do you need to build infrastructure that is not needed? Um, that doesn't really make sense. Do you want to build infrastructure that's needed? So uh, I'm not I'm not really sure what you know. Yeah, what?
0: It's what a hard one, right? I f- I find policy wise, everyone kind of defaults. All of us default to our own kind of hobby horses, right? There's there's a group of people who we, anytime there's a problem, we yell infrastructure as if that's some sort of wonderful kind of you know solution to everyone's problem. And yeah, as you say, it does absolutely boost GDP. It gets people back to work. But at some point, if you're building white elephants, then, you know, again, maybe it's still better than nothing, right? Maybe it's still just for the sheer um, economic kind of multiplier effect of getting people in jobs and letting them spend in other places. Maybe you don't mind building a couple of bridges to nowhere if it if it keeps the economy going. Um, but there is that sense of kind of, you know, I, I actually agree with you that, that infrastructure is always good. More infrastructure is always better than lo- than less infrastructure spending. <laughs> There's kind of that story of, you know, just, just chuck, chuck a lot of money at it and th- that's, that's the solution. But... Um, I think there is a whole lot of people who just like the idea of building stuff, and again, I don't. I don't mind that conceptually. Um, it, it is a little bit too, you know. You know what I am you know frustrated by, mate, and this is not going to get solved. But I am frustrated there are no contingency plans already in place that governments, regulators, bureaucrats haven't already said, "Hey, let's make sure there are fifteen large or eighty-five small or one hundred and twenty-six, you know, whatever projects that we have on the books. That next time there is a, an economic shock, we should learn it from the GFC. We should be learning it now." We 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 believe these things are worth doing. They're not priority one projects. We're not doing them right now because we've got other things to do, and there's only so much money we can spend. And in, in good times, you don't have to be reckless with the budget. But even when things get tough, here's the here's the B list. Here's the list of the next the next forty or the next hundred or the next whatever that we can go and press the button on now and it's not just more roads because, frankly, there's only so many construction workers to go around. Um, now, if we have a lot of home builders go to business and you, you want some construction work to be done, but it's not just those. Right? It's the retail the retail workers who are at the, at the doors of Centrelink. It's the airline staff. It's the travel staff. They're not going to be building roads anytime soon. So you would think some sort of thoughtful foresight would would have, you know, you, you rip the cover off it. You know, PM, PM. Here's here's the report. I just you know I broke the glass. I grabbed it out. Let's go and do these things. The plans are already in place. We know how we're going to do it. We know who's going to do it. We can get it going in three weeks. Let's go. Um, we're now what three, four months into the into the pandemic, and it doesn't feel like there's much actually being done. I, I look, full credit to the government for spending the money they're spending. They're literally just handing out cash, which is fine, but there does seem a real dearth of of actual planning, of actual foresight.
1: Yeah, I think that's. That's largely true. I mean, that's probably a function of sort of the political system, right? I mean, different different (laughs) political parties have different agendas. Um, You know, agendas are not really constant over time because, you know, different parties occupy power um, at different points in time. Um, You know, it's it's a hard problem. I mean, like yeah like if you have enough roads you don't really need roads like I mean you can always make an argument that more, <laughs> exactly. more roads are useful but you know like it's yeah. you could Rip put more one road, build big,
0: another
1: one yeah. yeah yeah like you could put like you know big towers in the, uh, in, uh, in the CBDs and things like that but you really need big towers in the CBD I don't know like I mean does it really help um, yeah. so uh, yeah, I, I don't know this infrastructure spend thing. I've, I've you know it's it's not Powell just or it's not you know um, here it's it's everywhere you hear oh let you know just just spend on infrastructure but you know spend on what like you know what is a priority why um, I don't know um, so um, it, it's the thing is that it's harder to spend on. Other things that are going to have tangible benefits several years down the lane, right? I mean, the, yeah. whoever is in the government wants to spend yeah. right now so that the GDP looks good, so that they can get re-elected. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, yeah, no one's going to spend on, you know, let's can we spend uh, several billion dollars on education because that's going to help us, you know, 20 years down the line. you know, That's right. 20 years. You know, can I wait for 20 years? No, I need to get elected tomorrow. <laughs>
0: and you also can't. You also can't turn that on, right? Like when, when you hit a crisis, you can't all of a sudden create university lecturers or you know, like there's 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 a process that has to be. Able over time as you say I don't know maybe, maybe it's just simplistic I just I would have hoped there would have been enough stuff even if, actually, even if it's a party political thing even if each party had their own version of it I don't care right but if you want to be in government if you are or aspire to be surely it's reasonable for someone somewhere in the party machine the, the, the aspiring federal treasurer or the aspiring industry minister or the aspiring tourism minister or the aspiring agriculture minister to surely have a hey uh, th- th- those guys over there won't do it but we would do this thing if we got the chance if, if we felt we needed to I don't know, mate. Like, I completely agree, by the way. There's the, a the, the general lack of long-term thinking in general. Uh, but but just even just the right now, right? If, you, if all of a sudden you got, you know, half a million Australians out of work, it shouldn't have been too much to ask that those in power or aspiring to be had something to say about what they would do in that circumstance so that if it was needed, they could turn the switch on pretty quickly.
1: Yeah, I think that's that's true. I mean, you know, the... Um, yeah. Yeah. I think the problem really is that it's almost hard to always decide whether a, a loss of a job is permanent or temporary, right? I mean, and, and I think that makes it really, really hard. And uh, if it's a permanent loss, then, well, I mean, you know, you can you can, you can can make it, um, you know, you can defer it, but you can't eliminate it. I think that's the problem, right? Yeah. So um, it, again, this is a really this- hard problem.
0: That, I mean, that's the big hope, frankly, of the um, of JobKeeper and JobSeeker, right? The whole idea of trying to keep people attached to their employers so you don't have that friction of lose my job, go and find a job somewhere else, whether it's, okay, no work for me to do right now, but as soon as there is work, I'm still employed or I still have a relationship with my employer, I can go back to work reasonably quickly in the same way and hopefully that kickstarts the economy in a way that we haven't done before. But it's a, it's a fascinating, fascinating Exercise, mate, I have to say. I have a... One day I'll do a rant on a universal basic income. I've I've changed my mind on that one too, but we'll leave that for another day. Motley Fool Money. Financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Mate, speaking of coronavirus, Mm -hmm. there was an article in the AFR and the question provocatively, or the, the statement provocatively, says power balance shifts as shopping habits change. Now... This is, again, one you, you want to talk about today. I it, It's been a fascinating story around the way we've chosen to shop, the way we are finding ways to shop. Um, I assume in this case you're thinking about online versus retail?
1: Yeah, like I mean online versus retail and basically, you know, if people are moving to online, then, um, the, the, well, the retail folks, uh, you know, they're under pressure but then therefore they can, I guess, demand better deals for like a rent and if they don't get better deals, then, well, they can basically say, well, you know, I'm going to close my shop because I can still run my shop online, right? I mean, that's yeah. the, Yeah.
0: How big is this, mate? Uh, I mean, if you're – so I, I believe in the trend, right? I think I've, I've said – we've had a discussion internally. I think you made the point that more than 50% of retail will be online at some point in the future. One of the team, who I won't name because he's not here to defend himself, disagreed and said, you know, fundamentally didn't think that was true. I think it's going to be as high as 70 or 80% at some future point, probably 30, 40 years hence, so a long way out. Um, it, it, what I think – what I find fascinating is the to, – to, to coin or to use a phrase, the unit economics, right? So at a retail level – um, each individual, you know, the, the chain of stores as a whole can still be selling a lot of product, but because of the individual store level costs, lights, power, rent, staff, inventory, fixtures, all that stuff, there's a very different story. And that's where online is so powerful. You can have one single warehouse or increasingly number of warehouses around the country, but, you know, conceptually a few of those with less inventory overall because you don't have to have 10 units in that shop, 10 units in that shop, 10 units in that shop. If you know you're only going to sell five a week across the whole lot, you just you, know, you put the stock where you know you can can use it. It is a much, much more efficient way of doing business. It makes a whole lot more sense. That being said, are we not a little bit early in calling the death of physical retail? I mean, maybe sales fall by one or two or three percent. Not, I've obviously fallen a lot more during the pandemic, but over time, if we go out 12 months, maybe sales will have fallen I don't know a couple of percent I mean is this a trend that will absolutely come but we actually run the risk of losing out by expecting it to happen too quickly given how much people actually like going shopping
1: yeah like I, mean, I don't know like I mean like I a mean, bit shopping is more of an experience thing right you go to the shopping mall it's not just for shopping you, you know have some food you have some coffee right. um you know you loiter around maybe you watch a movie <laughs> things like that I I, I don't know um Um, I I think, well, well, it's really the cost factor, right? I mean, I think the shifting balance really means if you have a fixed cost and you lose, you know, let's say 5% of your sales, Right, that is a material impact because you've got a large fixed cost to run the shop, right? And therefore, it seems legitimate that shop, Shop owners, or not shop owners, but, you know, yeah, those people who, I mean, they run the business at the the shop level, uh, especially if it's franchised, for example, you know, they have a legitimate reason to ask for low rent, right? Because, um, you know, I mean, effectively, if they're paying more rent, you know, the fixed cost goes up. So, even like at a 5% to 10% level over time, I think it can have an impact. I don't think, I mean, I I think the debt of physical retail Uh, being imminent I think that is overblown that's not going to happen anytime soon but I I don't know like I mean you know I find like I you know I find find that maybe more people would be more amenable to um, shopping online now that they've got the experience of doing it over you know during the pandemic and you know it's all convenient and you know lots of things are available online and as more things are available online I guess you know it becomes even more competitive from a pricing point of view and you know and it's, it's a cycle right um, so
0: I don't know I mean it's a, it's a funny one I find, it, I find this really difficult you know like I mean Amazon's been around now since 1997 that's 23 years and I will say obligatory I own shares I think you still do if you don't that's okay um, you, know, you know they've been over 23 years the death of retail has been two decades and counting right <laughs> and, and it hasn't quite got here yet malls were going to die department stores were going to die retail specialty stores were going to die maybe they still will But I also wonder, you know, over what period of time, you know, and at some point, at some level, I mean, look, eventually if it goes to zero, you've got to find a way to get out before it goes to zero. So there's no harm in not... Having you don't want to play every game in town. You can avoid the you can avoid the physical retail game for sure. Um, on the flip side, by the way, some of the physical retailers are some of the best and brightest in the online space. Premier Investments that owns just jeans and Peter Alexander's Smiggle amongst others, it's regularly putting up 20, 30, 40% growth in online sales. Um, super retail again that owns Super Cheap, Rebel, and a whole lot of others. Saw really strong growth in online sales. There is some sense that, you know, even at a, at a retailer level, while the stores themselves may go away, it's far from certain that these retailers will actually perish and simply just become better versions of themselves online.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I I, I, I think that's a great point. So, like, I mean... Fifteen years ago, probably it was harder to go online. Now it's not that hard to go online. So a lot of lot of companies have got online strategies. Whether it's you know as you said, a super retail group, um, whether it's Premier, you know, whether it's like Walmart, everybody has got online, and their online is going now growing faster. I guess when I said brick and mortar, what I really mean is those stores that are brick and mortar only, right, Right, and that have not invested in a online strategy. And um, yeah, like I mean, as, as in fact, if you invest in an online strategy, your your stores and your uh, warehouses near your stores, those are your hubs and spokes for distribution. Uh, it can actually come in very handy, um, you know, when it comes to competing with someone like Amazon, for example, or, you know, Kogan or whoever you're, you're thinking about. So I, I think it's not, yeah, so I think it's, yeah, we're watching the online component of sales for any retailer is important and if their online is growing then they're and they're making investments in the right direction i think that's 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 fine uh and having a store presence in that case it's it's more about like i mean there are big bankruptcies that have happened right Sears for example in the us yeah. is a big one that i can think of and most of the bankruptcies that have happened are, are the ones that didn't have a proper online strategy and, and especially the big box retail format, right? So, if you think of DJs and you know, uh, you know, Dave Jones and Myers, the big box format is, um, is, <laughs> yes. is particularly hurting large again, large yeah. fixed costs and things like that, right?
0: Agreed. I, the other thing was, so for all of what I've just said and all of what you've said, Matt, I also want people to. So, my, my view is this I think what because of that union economic problem you can have small decline, small decline, small decline, disaster. You know, it's, you, you can't have retail sales falling 2% a year for 10 years and then eventually go out of business because at some point you do cross that line, as you've already said. we sent Harris Scarf, Harris Scarf? Yeah, Harris Scarf things go broke. Um, mm-hmm. You know, again, as you say, DJ's and Meyer in a world of hurt. Um, big uh, targets effectively being shut down. Um, you know, it, it, you can still have sales and, and large levels of sales. If you don't get enough sales per per unit, per box, per store, and those aren't profitable enough sales, it doesn't take much, right? You can lose 10% of your sales and be completely unprofitable. So for those who are saying, well, I'll wait until you know sales fall X percent or whatever, uh, or you might say, well, they're only down five, there's only 5% to go, that's not much. Trust me when I say, if you lose 5%, is, there's very few stores who can actually drop 5% in sales, and not go from a loss to a profit, sorry, profit to a loss, just because of the very nature of those economics. And so I would just caution our listeners that, you know, I'm an optimist by nature. We've actually got a couple of retailers, uh, largely physical retailers, that are recommendations of ours at ShareAdvisor, the service I run. Um, but, you know, we're very, very mindful that at some point you don't go from 100 to zero before you lose money. 100 to 92 is probably enough to, to see you absolutely taken to the cleaners as an investor, anyway. I have nothing to add. Mate, I want to talk about going – being taken to the cleaners because there was a fa- – well, hopefully we'll do this justice. The story of Hertz, the car rental company, has been a fascinating one in the US. And while many of our listeners don't invest in the US, neither you nor I really care about Hertz at all, um, the story has been a fascinating one. So the company went, in, went effectively went broke. Now, in the US, bankruptcy is a more um, gentle process than here. You can go into what they call Chapter 11. I'm sure our listeners have heard or, or read about uh, largely called reorganization, so basically you get to continue an operating business. It's a little bit like a business going to an administration, then hopefully being sold or, or you know, re, regen, re, um, uh, reborn somehow. Uh, so reorganization in the US, they go to reorganization. Hopefully they find a buyer, or they raise some money, or they raise some debt, or they find a way to kind of keep the business going. Most of the shareholders do still get wiped out, generally speaking, uh, but the, you know, the, the, it's a it's a it, more businesses survive Chapter Eleven there than survive bankruptcy here, proportionally put it that way. So Hertz goes into Chapter 11 reorganization. The shares somehow inexplicably jump on the US markets. The Investors seem to take a view that, okay, at least now it's bankrupt. At least now they've done what they've done. At least the people running it have a chance to do something. And the shares aren't worth nothing because this is not like Australia. The company could remain a listed entity after reorganization and the shares will probably be worth something, maybe, possibly, and hey, if I can buy them cheap enough at you know point something of a cent, and then you know they eventually get up to, to, to you know five cents or ten cents, I, c- I can make a lot of money. So so the speculation is is rife. Um, frankly, it's it's a bit like the go go days of you know the market we're in right now. Which people are trying to find ways of making some money. So that's kind of that's strange enough. Hertz then goes to the court and says, hey, what we'd like to do, because because people are speculating on our shares, because the share price has gone up, we want to take advantage of their speculation. We want to say they've they've pushed our shares up so much. We actually think it's better for us to try and issue more shares, do another share issuance, raise some more capital, actually use that to get ourselves out of bankruptcy. The shares are so high right now, it's actually cheaper to do that than try and use debt to try and reorganise the company. And for a little while, mate, it seemed like it was going to go ahead. The the headlines overnight, unfortunately, the SEC's had a look at that and gone, no, guys, you you can't do that. That's not going to happen. I am tempted, mate, to categorise this as – almost predatory, right? If you, if you think there are enough knuckleheads out there who are going to throw money at you at, at point something of a cent, that you can literally raise a billion dollars in cash from people who have no better thing to do with their money than throw it at a bankrupt car rental business. <laughs> it's frankly not exactly the best business in the world with the hope of making a little bit more. If that's not the definition of kind of hype, speculation, uh, you know, thoughtless, uh, you know, wastes of money. Uh, maybe Hertz doesn't make money from here, by the way. It's always possible. It's unlikely. Um. I, I I just I'm really glad the SSA stopped it. Quite frankly, because I don't think I don't know how it was possible for anyone in good faith to throw money at Hertz with with any sort of reasonable investment perspective and say, yeah, no, no, I think I think this money will absolutely make Hertz all of a sudden a, a profitable, successful, long term business, rather than well, the shares are only a ten cents. If they go to twenty, I can, I can double my money. So yeah, I'll buy some shares in that IPO or that that secondary capital raising. Am I too
1: cynical? Um, no, no, you're not being cynical. I think uh, I think you raise a fair point. I, I think there's a, there's a little backstory here, so uh, which I'll quickly add. So uh, yeah, the please. SEC, not the, not the SEC. So I think it's listed in New York Stock Exchange, if I'm correct. Yeah, New York. So, so New York Stock Exchange has actually started a delisting process for Hertz, um, while you know Hertz was in in bankruptcy protection. So the delisting process had started, and they said that they want to issue more shares. But here's the funny thing. Uh, And this is you know this is like a difference between the Australian market and the um, and the American market, right? Share issuance is not typically made directly to retail shareholders, right? Mm -hmm. Share issuance basically means that some uh, uh, I don't know hedge fund, some uh, uh, private equity, some institution is actually willing to buy shares, right? Exactly. Well, I mean you can only. (laughs) You can only sell the shares if somebody is willing to buy them, right? Because it's a a direct placement that typically happens, right? So, I mean, I think that, I find actually that part fascinating as to, um, you know, without even going into whether they should be able to raise and not raise, and they went to the court and the court said yes and SEC said no or whatever. I just find it fascinating that there are institutions out there which actually <laughs> want to invest in this, um, and I don't know what they're thinking, but they're, I think that is amazing uh, that they, they they are actually interested in investing in a company that's you know, it, so if if that's the case, well, you know, if somebody wants to invest, I guess here's here's the other thing, right? If if institution <laughs> wants to buy the share, I don't, I think SEC should not stop them. Let the institutions buy the share. What's the problem? Let them buy it. <laughs> then it can go to zero and. That's okay because the institutions decided nobody's putting a gun to their head and saying buy the shares. I mean they are putting their hand up saying give me the shares and how to say well <laughs> hello you can have some. <laughs>
0: it's amazing. It's amazing. I, uh, I'm tempted. I'm tempted to categorize it as the way the market's thinking. Hopefully it's an aberration, mate, rather than. The lack of any any sort of reasonable judgment by people who otherwise might take a take a go at this. Speaking of speaking of which, my last my last bit of company news for this week is not really even news, other than it was a conversation we had as a team uh, a couple of days ago. Zoom, the the online uh, video conferencing software slash website. Uh, we use it. We're using it now to actually record. Hopefully we're using the local audio, which is better than some of our past weeks where we use Zoom and the audio wasn't great, but we're still using Zoom just to make sure we got it back up and we can see each other while we're chatting, still in some degree of isolation. Though we might we might finish that up this week. Um, <coughs> excuse me, I'm sorry. The such so so strong, so fast, so so swift has been the uptake of Zoom. This is now a sixty five billion dollar business. I don't know how many years after going public. but is it even two years? I, I don't know how long they've been public. Um, this is a. This is just a. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not even sure what to make of it. I have to say, part of me is. Uh, I mean, I, I've missed out, so I'm, I'm I'm bitter about that. Maybe I'm maybe I'm discounting the company because I have missed out. Maybe maybe it's a bit of you know sort of um, sour grapes. On the other hand, sixty five billion dollars for something that you could do on Skype for free. Uh, Microsoft has a product. Slack has a product. Um, Google has a product, Apple has a product. I, I, <laughs> I, so big winner from the, from, the, from the pandemic, absolutely. Is this sustainable, mate? Or do we look back and go, man, $65 billion for Zoom? What were we thinking?
1: Yeah, so I think those are all valid questions, but I'm going to, ask, I'm going to phrase this uh, slightly differently. How many companies okay. do you know of um, on the ASX, let's assume, that have quarterly revenue? Of three hundred million dollars, that was up year over year one hundred and seventy percent. I think the answer to that is zero. <laughs> okay, so there are no. Com- I mean, but that's, only, these, that's
0: there are- it around, though, right? I mean, that's that's hindsight, which is fine. If they're doing three hundred no, no. million next year, that's great. If they're doing twenty million this next year, or or, or there's a competitor no, that comes and takes no, away some of their margin,
1: no, no, but that I think is that, that's just not that's not fair, right? I mean, if a company can grow one hundred and seventy percent year over year, again, as I said, these are phenomenal numbers, right? So there are some companies that have phenomenal numbers that mm. I think Australian investors do not see and do not realise that that can actually happen, because if you look at well CBA, that doesn't grow. 170 percent, and if you look at CSL, it doesn't grow 170 percent. People are happy with 15 Mm percent if this, if they're lucky to see it, right? So, I think that's the number one difference, and that's that's why it appears outlandish. But as I said, like, I mean, there are very few companies that have that type of growth now okay, I take your point that it could be one-off because of the pandemic, but I'll still say 170%, even if it becomes 100% next year, that is pretty phenomenal. At 100% growth rate, you, you know, at 50% growth rate, you could be doubling at such phenomenal rates, you wouldn't know where you are, right? So um, that's number one. Uh, number two, this company had some phenomenal amount of free cash flow. So this is not just just some company which is not, again, <laughs> I'll, while I'm defining the company, I don't own shares and I, I do have sour grapes just like you, sourdough. I'll just qualify that. <laughs> um, um, okay. Uh, how many companies do you think have $1.1 billion of cash on the ASX? Not many. In fact, a lot of companies basically came down during the pandemic saying, Give me some cash because I have no cash because I'm going to run out of cash. Blue chip companies like Cochlear. So I think there's that difference, right? Um, you know, you might think this is not blue chip, but this, you know, it's, it's, it's cash balance is $1.1 billion sitting at the end of the quarter. That is, you know, these are some spectacular, unheard of type of numbers. And we can always say whether the 60 billion is justified or not. But as I said, I think, you know, 1.5 billion, 1.1 billion of cash. Um, it, these are some, again, phenomenal number. It, it had some phenomenal amount of free cash flow in the quarter. Um, mm. Again, off the top of my head, something like, you know, 700 million dollars of free cash flow uh, is some weird number. Uh, again, that's because people are pay, pay, paying ahead of time and things like that. So, yes. So. I think as I said in the in a meeting, I am skeptical for all those reasons that you are skeptical that you know there is Skype, there is FaceTime, there is WhatsApp, there is Google, whatever um, but I think there's some benefit to having a standalone product that is not trying to... Push some other product. So like, Google Meet, for example, is trying to push Google Mail, um, and that I think you know rubs people differently. FaceTime is there, but it, sure. it is there pushing the Apple ecosystem. There's something else that's pushing some other ecosystem. Um, so maybe there's some benefit to that. There's huge uptake of the you know stuff. Again, is the valuation rich? Maybe it is. I don't know, but I wouldn't say it's outlandish just because it's a video video um, software company. Uh, just because, I mean, it, the, you know, the numbers are just unbelievable. Like, I mean, you know, when I look at those numbers, I fall off my chair. I think like, you know, I would like to have a business like that, <laughs> <laughs> so Like you know, that just does video software. Uh, and, and and what we talked about is the, is the comp- competitive effects and, you know, the staying power and things like that. And why isn't somebody else coming and stealing their, uh, you know, lunch and dinner and breakfast and everything else that's coming with it? Um, you know, the customer growth number was some 350% year over year. These are number. I just don't see numbers like that. These are out of the world numbers, uh, in 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 my in my opinion. So, um, I think maybe the valuation is high, but I think it's. I mean, you know, to get those numbers, you have three, you know, two hundred and sixty-five thousand customers. You've got to be doing something right. Um, you know, to have that kind of revenue growth, you've got to be doing something right. Um, and uh, I guess maybe competition should pay attention that if these guys are doing something right, why aren't they trying to eat their lunch? Um, so. Uh, Yeah, like I'm not an investor. I'm not telling anyone to invest. Again, I don't know enough (laughs) about that company to say invest. You and I have had this discussion that, you know, I think that this can be disrupted. But at the same time, I want to give them full credit for the the type of results that they're throwing up. I mean, if you consistently can deliver this, type of result, this is worth a lot more, right? I mean, mm-hmm. if you can deliver this type of growth over a few years, it's worth a lot, lot more than what it is today. But I know. Can I do it? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. But
0: <laughs> I have one word for you. Groupon. <laughs> <laughs> remember yeah, remember so, Groupon? So, Groupon? Groupon in 2010 was the sales were going through the roof. It was the new way of doing business. Everything was going to be all about Groupon all the time until it wasn't. I, uh, look, yeah, I, I'm cherry-picking yeah. cherry an example. I'm not. I'm not even seriously suggesting that we should consider it. I just, I just, in, in my own defense, I think it's you know there are businesses that 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 are absolutely stellar performers, and there are those that that, that you know rise like a rise like a shooting star and then flame out horribly. <laughs> you know, maybe, yeah. maybe this is Group One, maybe it's not. Uh, it's probably not. But I, I, it just strikes me a business with very little barrier to entry that you're paying sixty-five billion. If someone said to me, "Hey, buy the sixty-five billion-dollar business," great current financials. And I said, okay, cool. How how are you going to stay ahead? Well, uh, we just hope that people will keep paying us because you know, other people do it for free and we don't, and you know that that's probably okay. And maybe it is. I don't know, mate. I'm uh, I'm put me down as a skeptic.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think I think it's all. You know, there are lots of examples of stuff that's you know, uh, you know. There's, there used to be. You know, there's still a company called GoPro, which was you know, oh yeah, very bright, yeah, yeah bright and shiny. Uh, look, I, I think that's a very valid question to ask. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, we you know, but you and I have been asking this question for a long time. And <laughs> yeah. Right? I mean, we've been Watching asking this question. Yeah. yeah, like we've been asking this question when when this company was a ten billion dollar company. <laughs> right. So you and I are are right now messing Correct. up on a seven Correct. seven bagger. <laughs> uh, and and for the last little while, this company has been delivering. So I'm just calling myself stupid at this point and saying, well, you know, I lost a fair bit of money because I, uh, well, you know, I just thought that other people it's are going to eat lunch. Yeah. Well, yeah. So I, I don't know. Like, I mean... I think all those are valid questions as we were discussing the other day I mean yeah. I think the one way to think about this is to look at execution and then when you I think first see uh, execution is faltering that's probably the point at which you want to you know revisit the thesis maybe that's you know and at that point you might lose you know 20 30% at one go but you you know if it has executed it has like i mean if if i had bought a 10 billion dollars and this had lost 20, 30% and I had to sell because I thought things had changed, you know, I'd still make a fair bit of money. Um, and it's not going to go bankrupt as well, right? I mean, it's 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 pretty blue chippy if you think about it in that sense, right? I mean, it's got a lot of cash, it's, it's free cash flow, positive, it's not going to disappear. Uh, it's able to spend on R&D. So I mean, it's pretty blue chippy in that sense. Um, uh, yeah, but it's not my thing. <laughs>
0: <laughs> mine are, mine are. We will say whether we keep looking stupid. If this is a, Well, put it this way. If, if there's a $130 billion company this time next year, I won't be asking you about it. Put it that way. <laughs> I'll happily let, let the topic just fade into obscurity and we'll never ever mention it again. We'll see. We'll see how we go. All right, mate. <laughs> I we've really got time for a question before we finish up this episode. What do you reckon? Should we dip into the mailbag? Yeah, let's do it. Now, before we do that, though, I want to talk to our members about... What we Feel extreme opportunities, your wonderful stock picking service that has so far done a wonderful job of streeting the market, not without some volatility, not without some risk, but that is the price of admission when you're looking for the big winners of tomorrow for a price that is just stupidly cheap. Um, again, I, you know, I, I I'm half our listeners. I'm glad we're not putting the price up. I'm a shareholder of the Motley Fool, so on behalf of the Motley Fool, I wish we would put the price up. However, <laughs> however, we'll take it. Whatever is being offered, and our listeners should certainly take it, I think. Um, as always, we should say past performance is no guarantee of future performance. On the other hand, as David Gardner, our co-founder and, and chief rule breaker says... If it's not, then what is a better indicator of future performance? So go to fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast, EO for extreme opportunities. That's fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast. Take advantage of a stupidly cheap deal to join Motley Fool extreme opportunities. Have Doc and Kevin lead you on a search for the best smaller, high growth, higher risk companies they can find as they search for the next big, big, big winners on our market. Now, mate, Brendan asks a question, and I love this question for a whole lot of different reasons, mate, so let's go with it. He says, "'G'day, Scott and Doc. I love the podcast. I've been listening for six months as I start on my investing journey. Keep it coming.'" We will, Brendan. Thank you very much. I've got a question. "'I work in travel, and my salary is down by 60% for three months.'" Mate, we have our sympathies. So it must be a tough, tough, tough industry to work in at the moment, mate. I don't imagine it's going to change anytime soon, I have to say. So hopefully for you it does, or hopefully you can find another way to supplement your income, mate. But, um, but all strength to you. He says, I'm entitled to withdraw 10 grand from my super. I am well positioned to weather the 60% downturn in salary. Would it be reckless to withdraw the money and use it for myself for investing? He says, maybe I could play a 10 year competition to see how much I can beat the super fund by. The 10k is tax-free, and then over the, over time, so the next six to 12 months, I put the 10k back in with a salary sacrifice, which only affects my take-home pay by say seven and a half grand. I realise the super withdrawal is for those falling on hard times. I love this question. Am I entitled morally to do this? So, doc, lots and lots of stuff. There. So we've had this question a few times. People saying, look, you know, and it's true. If you took 10 grand out now tax-free, you can put that 10 grand back in <laughs> with with a tax break. And you basically, you know, you're still not better off. So, so pure cash flow wise, and this is it's a terrible design policy for a million reasons. This is one of them. You literally withdraw it, then put it back and bank two and a half grand in the back pocket courtesy of the taxpayer. And frankly, with the budget, the way it is right now, that's the last thing people need to be doing for the government, not necessarily for themselves. It, you know, as, uh, as Kerry Packer said, maybe they're not spending it that wisely that we want to donate extra. So I wouldn't criticize anyone for doing that. They're legally able to do so. Um, but let's get back to that bit in a minute. So there's an advantage potentially if he does put the money back. My first thought, Brendan, and I'll, I'll answer first, then get Doc. Um, my first thought is you may. Most people won't put it back, despite their best intentions, because there's always something else to do with that ten grand. So maybe you will, maybe you won't. Just got to be careful about that one. Is it smart, Doc, to take ten grand out, even though he can, even though he can weather the storm? He's not using it for living expenses. He's going to try and use it to beat his own super fund outside super and see if you can do that as well as bring some money back in. Is that a smart strategy for Brendan to follow?
1: Well, look, I mean, again, uh, I'll just comment on generally. I mean, if you can follow through on it, I mean, you're basically pocketing two and a half grand and uh, potentially, you know, you have more control on how you invest and therefore you can invest and win. (laughs) I mean, it looks win-win as long as you can put put that money back. Uh, I mean, if you don't put that money back and you land up not investing this money, then you are in a in a worse off position, even if you're not able to put that money back because you basically got this money tax-free out, I mean, and you're able to, you know, compound it long-term, I think you're ahead. Um, you know, but there are lots of ifs and buts um, in this. I mean, absolutely, if you can take it out and put it back in and, I mean, uh, you're legally able to, I mean, you have to, sh- I think, show a financial hardship to take it out. I don't understand. I've not looked at the rules that carefully uh, to know exactly the ins and outs of, of how how it works. But yeah, like, I mean, Take it out, put it back in. You know, pocket the difference, and um, you know, invest, invest, and you know, you can get ahead. I mean, if it's legally allowed, I guess you, one could do it, and they, they would financially be, I guess, better off if uh, if they are investing sensibly. Mm. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> I, I don't uh, know. Yeah. Like, <laughs>
0: yeah. I, I gotta say, mate. I so look, Brendan. Um, possibly is the answer, as Doc said. Um, financially, you're right. You, you could absolutely pocket a difference, or contribute more and have for the same amount of money. Effectively, either either way, whichever way you want to do it, right? So you put ten grand back in after tax. That's equivalent to twelve grand back into your super, so you can actually increase your super, or, or you know, or pocket some 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 change out of the, doing that. Absolutely possible. Absolutely legal. Uh, a couple of things to think about. The first is, as I started by saying, everyone thinks they're going to put the money back in. Uh, fewer people, <laughs> often very few people, actually end up doing it because life gets in the way. So, first thing is, sometimes it's best not to have to rely on your own best intentions. I'm not not, uh cast when You, Brendan, I'm sure you're a disciplined man who'll put it straight back in. But many people listening will think they're going to do the same thing and won't. So be careful about that. Second thing for me is be careful of the way you earn money inside super. Inside super is not only is it tax effective to put money in. But the the earnings of the super fund are taxed super concessionally, so the same return outside super every single year is worth much less than the same return inside super. So for most people, um, if you even if you beat the beat your superannuation fund by a percentage point a year, which would ordinarily be a great return, and we say go for it. There's every possibility that would actually come at a cost of of the extra tax you're going to pay anyway, um, and something like I think I, th- I want to say I'm not a super expert, but uh, earnings are taxed at I want to say 15, I think is right, uh, inside super. Uh, if you're paying tax at 30 or 40 percent outside super, depending on how much you're earning, uh, you, you're kind of going backwards by effectively, you know. One and a half points, percentage points a year. Call it that between the thirty and the fifteen percent, because the way the maths works. Just be, just be careful um, with that one. Again, even if you do win, you may not get be ahead. Thirdly, you may not win. So, some for some people, super is best left as a passive investment inside super to compound slowly, steadily, hopefully quickly, but you know over time, over a lifetime for retirement. If you can't quite match that, or you're not sure if you can match that, sometimes it's not bad to have a you know a lump sum over here just doing its thing while you invest in your own name and try and beat that. And you absolutely should try and beat that. We're big fans of that. But at some level, if you don't do it, the cost of that might actually be more than the benefit you're trying to gain. So be careful with that as well. I love the question, Brent, about the moral thing. Um, I, look, Neither Doc or I are philosophers nor moral experts. And certainly I wouldn't try and impose my morality on anybody else. Um, I, I think you are entitled to do it for what it's worth. Um, I think it's terrible policy, by the way. So you know, if, if, if you chose not to do it for moral reasons, I actually think you're probably going to be better off anyway in the long run because of the reasons I've just talked about. Um, yeah, you, uh, yeah look, if you're legally entitled, you're morally entitled by definition, I suppose, if you want to look at it that way, um, I think it's terrible policy. Look, the thing is you're, not, I mean, you're, you're probably ripping off the taxpayer by a couple of grand if you want to see it that way by, by pocketing the difference on something that's just simply a, a transaction. It would, in theory, be covered or might be covered by the ATO's anti-avoidance powers, but realistically, they're not going to come after individuals for doing that sort of stuff, so... Morally, your call, mate. If you feel okay about it, go for it. If you don't feel okay about it, then that's cool too. Um, yeah, I, I don't have any more of that. that. That's that's a decision for you to make. doctor. do you have a, a morally philosophical perspective on this? No,
1: like I, I don't want to – like I mean I think I would be very careful about uh, – okay, so I don't want to cast more or less portions and, you know, uh, I think everybody has their right to – you know, there are some things that are obviously right and obviously wrong, which is very easy to say. Some things <laughs> yeah, that, you know, it's it, right. it, it, things, like things that like on are you know, which might be right for Scott might not be right for me. What is right for me, which, you know, uh, may not be right for you and things like that. Right. right, uh, right so right. I don't want to I don't want to really tell Brendan. The only thing I'll tell Brendan is that Brendan, you want to be. Um, super clear on what the rule actually says and if he were allowed <laughs> or not. That's very and true, mate.
0: That is pl- very true.
1: Please, please speak with an financial advisor and accountant who knows these things. Because the last, you, you don't want to, you know, because you don't, you don't want to be on the wrong side of the of the ATO book, <laughs> as I like to tell. And you want to do the right thing by by the law. So that's the only thing I'll say. That you know, if the law allows you to do it, then I mean, you know, the regulation allows you to do it, then it's your call, really. Uh, right. But I would, I don't know the fine finer points here, so I just say talk to someone who knows.
0: Good advice. I can't help myself, Doc. The uh, I saw an article this morning. In fact, uh, one of my Twitter followers, Colin, uh, just tweeted me about it. He says forty percent of the people who withdrew super had no decrease in income, or got government benefits to cover it. The very, very worst financial policy in more than a decade. It just an absolute dog's breakfast of a policy. Horribly constructed. Horribly implemented. Um, uh, you know, and I think I had to do things quickly. I think the rest of the government's response is absolutely admirable and and very reasonable, responsible. You can have different perspectives, but generally, but man, this was just an absolute debacle of a policy. There you go. I've got to put that in. I couldn't help myself. Is that fair? I have no comment. (laughs) (laughs) Now, if you want to get in touch with us to have your question answered in one of our upcoming mailbag episodes, I'd love you to do that. So if you want to hit up doc, go to Twitter and go to at Anirban Mahanti. You can get in touch with Doc. I'm on Twitter at tmfscottp, and the Motley Fool's account is at the Motley Fool AU. That's all on the Twitter machine. If you're an Instagram kind of guy or girl, uh, then jump on the Instas and go to at the Fool AU and at tmfscottp. They're the same as our Twitter handles. I'm sure Doc will very soon be on Instagram, given the given the <laughs> encouragement by our, by our <laughs> listenership using the hashtag Get doc on Insta uh, so it won't be long I'm sure but for the meantime just just uh, just myself and, and the Motley Fool's corporate account on Instagram and on Facebook The Motley Fool Australia surprise surprise and I'm Scott Phillips money all one word uh, and of course you can email us info at fool.com.au now fools that does wrap us up but Surprise, surprise, we'll be back for a special mailbag episode, who'd have thought, on Sunday. Before we go, don't forget you can and you should subscribe to the Triple M Motley Fool Money Podcast through iTunes, your favourite Android podcast app, or of course the Podcast One app. We're now part of the Podcast One family, as you know. And if you do like what we're doing, please give us a rating, tell your friends, leave us a review. Be nice, be kind, help us out. We're doing this for free. We're doing this because we love it. We're doing this because we want to reach more people. And if you could help us do that, we'd be thoroughly, thoroughly appreciative. Um, uh, look, there's probably a bit of ego in there, but but genuinely, um, frankly, we could, we've could. got plenty of other things we could be doing right now, uh, but we're doing this because we love it, because we want to help people invest better. So if you can help us by sharing the love, we'd desperately appreciate it. And of course, you can get a dose of foolishness and an offer to join Dividend Investor by going to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back on Sunday with another dose of foolish insight. Fool on. Fool on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.